Pastor Xavier Ruth and the simple truths of God's mercies, new every morning. Acknowledge God's grace and mercy. They are new every morning. It's only His mercies that were not consumed, the Lamentations of Jeremiah says. I don't care what you're into. I don't care what you've been into. I don't care if you've been compromising. God is able to restore you right now. But you need to make confession. You need to respond to the Word of God because it's the Word of God that's going forth and the power of the Spirit of God that can make it alive. The power of the Spirit of God. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Bible commentator F.B. Meyer has said the Old Testament book of Ezra shows enthusiasm characterizing the beginnings of work for God. Then, coldness and apathy follow in face of opposition. But when men get back to foundation principles, the work is carried forward to completion. And it's in this setting that Pastor Xavier has been listing several important simple truths in identifying the attributes of men that God uses to start a new work to its completion. We looked at the first part of Ezra, the first six chapters, to show that God still is speaking to men today. In the latter half, we want to focus upon the men that God uses. Men are always asking me, women are always asking me, I want to be used of God. What do I have to do? And though this list is not exhaustive, we do observe through these chapters some very key issues if we're going to be used of God. Remember now that between chapters 6 and 7, there, are, there is a 60-year gap. It's been 80 years since the first return of Zerubbabel to repatriate the nation with the number of 50,000 Jews from the captivity. Zerubbabel returned around 536-37. It is now 457. And so 80 years is a long time. And all of a sudden, the men and the women that had been used to repatriate the nation through Zerubbabel, the political leader, have fallen into sin and compromise. The first thing I note in these last four chapters is that God uses men and women of the word. In chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes, ordinances in Israel. Now Ezra was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, verse 6 tells us of chapter 7. Now notice that he says in verse 10 that he prepared his heart to seek the law of Moses. The word seek means to study. But not only study the word, no, he says to do it. If you're going to study the word of God, what is the reason for that? If you're not really intending to be a doer of it, then what you're intending to be is a hypocrite. We want to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Now, James 1.25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so I can't be just a hearer, but I must be a doer. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, actors. Why? They knew the law. But they studied it to make a show of themselves to men. But they weren't doers in their heart. Jesus says, you guys strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You guys are worshiping men's traditions instead of being obedient to the word of God. 
And so we not only need to study, but we need to be doers of the Word of God. And so God uses men and women of the Word. They study, they do, and they teach. Secondly, men, God uses men and women of willing service. In chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, chapter 8 gives us the listing of those who came back with Ezra, which was only about 1,500. Again, a small remnant in comparison to those who went into captivity. Here Ezra says that he gathered them at the river, and they were there for three days. He looked upon the people, and he found that there was no sons of the Levites there. And so he sent Eliezer and some of the other leaders that had understanding. He gave them commandments to seek them out, those who would be servants of the house of God. And um, in verse 20, he gives us the Nethanims, who were also of the uh, service for the Levites uh, in the days of Solomon. And so God uses men and women of willing service. And that should be the attitude of every person who ever comes to Christ. Because we are all indebted to Christ. But we don't serve Him because we have to. We serve Him because it's a privilege and He has called us to serve Him. But notice also that He speaks there of serving with understanding. Not only did He ask men of understanding to seek these Levites out, but He says that the Levites themselves had understanding. But see, their understanding was based on the study of God's Word. Their understanding was based on the gifts and callings that God had given to them. And so God uses men and women who are willing service. But thirdly, God uses men of prayer. In chapter 8, verse 21 through 23, Ezra proclaimed the fast in the river that he might humble himself and the others before God to seek the right way for themselves and for their little ones and their possessions. He goes on to speak how he was ashamed to request of the king an escort because he had bragged about God. And he says, hey, our God is powerful. He can protect us. And after that, he felt kind of bad asking the king, hey, by the way, king, can you spare ten men? There's a lot of bad dudes out there, and they might jump us and take our money. <laughs> now, be careful not to make doctrine out of experience. In this case, Ezra did not take the escort. You look at Nehemiah, when we get into him, he took the escort. Be careful that you don't start living your life by what God has done and how he has done it in the past. Though it may be the same situation, you better go to God in prayer. He may want to do it differently. Here he's exercising faith. In Nehemiah's case, he's exercising wisdom. So don't say one is spiritual and one isn't. Two different situations, God did it differently. Now prayer is our greatest privilege, but it's also our greatest neglect. It's something that we just don't like to do and we put off. And after we've gone over our list of what we want, then we don't know what to say. You don't learn how to pray about studying about it only. You need to do it. Prayer is dependency upon God. Notice the first thing about prayer is they humble themselves before God. In verse 21, the first portion. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, James says in Proverbs 3.34. Prayer is an attitude of, of openness. He comes with his arms stretched out. That means, Lord, I'm coming naked before you. I'm not playing games. You can see through me, and I'm just going to make my request to you. This is where I'm at. This is what's going on. Too many times our prayers are so pretty. And some people pray with such big words. And I think the angels are throwing up when they're hearing. God wants to know where you're at. Poverty of spirit, recognizing that I am on earth. He's in heaven. And so therefore I follow the advice of Ecclesiastes that Solomon says, He's in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few. Pick them out. <laughs> Whenever you're brought before a real important or at least a person who you feel is important, isn't it funny how you stumble over your words because you don't want to say the wrong thing? 
Does that happen when you go to prayer? Or do you honor and esteem man more than you do God? Now, we have access to the throne. But are you kicked back, say, hey, what's going on, Lord? Or do you come in with a reverence? Don't come in with fear. You have access to him. But if you brought God down to your level, he's in heaven. Secondly, they were seeking direction from God. They wanted to tap into the things of God. They wanted to do his will, not theirs. Now, what a contradiction this is to today's teachers in, on the TV. And all those guys who make Christianity a glitter and, and glamour thing. And they have God as their errand boy. Amazing. On the borderline of blasphemy. I'm the one who was created. <laughs> God is the creator. The church has missed the mark today. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, let your will be done. Give us direction. But notice thirdly, too, that they were affected by the need. Therefore, food was not even desired. In verse 23, so they fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Now, fasting should never be thought of as some quick, easy, mechanical exercise that turns the ear of God to you. But fasting should be thought of something that is so, fasting is done simply because I am so overwhelmed by the need. As if you left your house this morning and it was work day and you didn't eat breakfast, you were kind of late, and you went to work and all of a sudden you're just about to go to lunch and you receive a phone call from the hospital in Huntington Memorial and say, listen, your son's down and you got hit by a car. All of a sudden, you don't even think of food. You are so overwhelmed by the situation and the need that you go down there. The loss of hunger is because of the burden of the situation that's at hand. This is the biblical teaching for fasting. Are you and I overwhelmed by the condition of the world, the condition of our own lives, the condition of our loved ones? Does that drive me to lose my hunger and to spend time in prayer? That's the biblical context of fasting. Not some little formula that I do and I say, okay, Lord, give it to me. Uh-uh. God uses men and women of prayer. We pray every Friday, first Friday of the month right here as a body. Every Tuesday there's men and women in there praying. The various ministries have their departments of prayer. There's a prayer chain ministry that goes on all the time, 24 hours. If there is one thing that I can attribute the success of this ministry up to this point, it has to be to godly men and women who pray. It certainly isn't because of the preacher. The preacher's involved, but it isn't because of the preacher. The prayer. But lastly, men and women are used of God who hope in revival. They have hope in revival. This is found in chapter 9, verse 8. Now listen to what's going on here. Chapter 7 and 8, Ezra has come back. Chapter 9 and 10, he comes into the awareness of all the sin that's going on. And in chapter 9, there, verse 8, listen to what he says. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God 
to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Once again, the word revival has been distorted by many in the church. When you hear the word revival, most of you think of, you drive by a church and the banner says, Revival, Friday night. And the priest said, we're having revival tonight. Let me tell you, no man can bring revival. And usually revival we equate with the lost being saved. But if you study it through the scriptures, revival is never for the non-believer. Revival is for the believer who has been complacent, coming to lethargy and compromising. Revival is for someone who has been alive and now is waned. The non-believer is regenerated. The believer is to be revived. You don't give mouth to mouth to a corpse. You give mouth to mouth to someone who has been alive and you want to revive him. That's the biblical teaching. And so God uses men and women who have hope in revival. But that hope is in God being able to do it by his word and by the power of his spirit. Not something that we, you know, cheer you on and, and it's a big flesh trip. But letting the spirit of God and the word of God do work in your miserable heart and mind. <laughs> and to change us and transform us and take that stony heart away and give us a heart of flesh that we can affect each other and the community around us. That's true revival. Let me tell you, some of us need revival. Some of us need to be revived. Because if all you're doing is being a silent witness, well, Buddhists do that, and so do atheists, and some of them are very good people, and they're not changing anybody's life. God has never called you to be a silent witness. There may be a point in time that's all you can do, but that's not the first step. <laughs> that's the last step. Jeremiah 7, he was called to go before the temple of the Lord. And he says, go to those people that are coming in. And their lips are close to me, but their hearts far from me. And tell them, don't trust in the words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You guys are coming, you're worshiping, you're doing this and that, but your hearts are far from me. But yet you're out there in la-la land. You're doing your own thing. Who are we deceiving, man? Certainly not God. Certainly not everybody. We need to pray that God would revive us. If such is the need in our lives. From verse 1 to verse 4, we see that they, revival comes because they grieved over sin. When the information came that they had intermarried with those of the land, I noticed this. They had been 80 years from the first group that came. And they had fallen into the sin. And now the information comes to Ezra. They had intermarried, had children, everything else. And in and, and, and verse 1 and 2, the sin is exposed. And verse 3... When he heard these things, he plucked off his garment, he ripped his clothes, he plucked off his beard. Now, when he went to Nehemiah, he did it the reverse. He plucked out people's beard, not his own. <laughs> I'd rather go Nehemiah's way. But he was grieved over it. Thirdly, in verse 4, sin grieved the men who feared God and reverenced the word. You see, if you love the word, when you see a brother or sister in sin, do you grieve? Does it come to you and say, hey, you know, Mary's living with John now. Do you say, well, I knew she wasn't a Christian. 
I told her I would never do that. Or do you fall on your face on the ground and pray? Does it grieve you? Do you believe that prayer can really change lives? These men believed it. There were men and women who hoped in revival. The revival of God's people. The natural outflow from that is then regeneration to the non-believer because we get excited, we get on fire, and we're open to God, and He uses us to reach the community. From verse 5 through 10, they confess their sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't wheel and deal with your sin. Confess your sin to God. They realize that it was sin against God, and therefore from verse 5 through 10, his hands are spread out in verse 5. He was ashamed and humility in verse 6. In verse 7, he says, we have been very guilty. In verse 6, our iniquities. In verse 10, we have forsaken your commandments. We, our, Ezra included himself. When you pray for your brothers and sisters' sins and what you see is going on, do you exclude yourself? Do you think you're better? You know what? There I would go if it wasn't for the grace of God also. Be careful of the self-righteous spirit. But not only do they confess their sin, not only do they grieve over sin, but they expect a response from the people. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord God to leave us a remnant to escape. And that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival of bondage, in our bondage. They acknowledge God's grace and mercy. They are new every morning. It's only His mercies that were not consumed, the Lamentation of Jeremiah says. I don't care what you're into. I don't care what you've been into. I don't care if you've been compromising. God is able to restore you right now. But you need to make confession. You need to respond to the Word of God. I never get behind this pulpit without thinking or expecting some response from the people who are hearing. Whether they reject it or receive it, but there's a response I expect. Because it's the Word of God that's going forth and the power of the Spirit of God that can make it alive. They also acknowledge conviction. In chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Ezra was praying, weeping, howling. The assembly came with him too. And then in verse 2, Shechaniah spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed. Now therefore, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. You see, there is conviction, and with conviction comes confession. He who confesses sins will be forgiven, but he who tries to hide it shall not prosper. So there was a response by the people. But notice what was the foundation for revival. The Word, prayer, the power of the Spirit of God. And then in verse 13 of chapter 9, he says, God... You are our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Amen. <laughs> Let me tell you, grace is something we don't deserve. Mercy is less than we deserve. My son breaks a window and I say, forget it. That's grace. My son breaks a window and it costs $50. I say, you just have to work $10 off. That's mercy. My son breaks a window and it costs $50. You got to pay the whole 50 That's law. Now, what do you want? I want God's grace, God's mercy. And it's extended to you and myself. So God uses men and women who have hope and revival 
and the people of God. The last thing we see about that is they see the revival and reform that God brings about by His Word and His Holy Spirit. In verse 3 of chapter 10, they make a covenant with their God to put away the wives, the children. Now that's heavy. They not only put away their wives, but their children through the marriages. Obedience to the Word of God. Now, don't make that a teaching for today because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you marry a non-believer and the non-believer wants to stay with you, you don't leave him. You don't leave her. You stay with them. If they decide to leave and they don't want to serve God or want to take you away from God, then you're set free. So don't make this a New Testament principle. This is what they did at that time. This is what God required. We don't understand why, but he did it. But notice their obedience in spite of the cost. They abandoned their sin in verse 3. They prayed for those in sin in verse 6. They confronted those in sin in verse 7 and 8. And they called them to repentance in verse 11 and 12. And they followed through to resolve the issue in verses 13 through 14. They dealt with sin, people. Do you try to skirt sin under the carpet or do you deal with it? We are called to be holy. We are called to abhor sin. We realize we're not perfect, but let me tell you, we are to fight and strive against sin. And if God is going to use us, then we must be men and women who have hope and revival. Not upon our own endeavor, not our own ability, not on the ability of the preacher, not on the ability of our money or anything else, but on ability for God to work in the midst of us as we study His Word, pray, and depend on the power of the Spirit of God. Let's not be concerned about filling the building. Let's be concerned with filling people with the Word, with the Spirit of God. And that God will take care of the buildings. That's no big deal. And so, Ezra gives to us some of the marks of men and women who are used. Now, you want to be used of God? Then you have to ask yourself, are you a man or woman of the Word? If you are, then God will use you. Then you'll study, you'll do it, and you'll teach it. Are you a man and woman who is willing service? Or do you only want to be seen? Do you always have an excuse when you're asked to do something? Or do you ever even desire to be used or to do something? Are you a man and woman of prayer? If you're not, how do you know where you're going? How do you know what God has for your life? How do you know when it's your will or His will? Are you a man or woman who has hope and revival because God is the one who can bring that? And are you praying for it? And are you doing your part in obedience to the Word? Come on, people. Let's get it on. Let's get serious with God. Let's not play games. Let's get down on our faces and pray that God would fill every pastor in the pulpit. That they would not be afraid of their congregations or their boards. That they'd be fired. Some preachers won't dare call out sin because they're afraid they'll be fired. What a tragic position to be in. And let's pray that God would fill them and they would be bold enough to call out sin. That God would begin to pour out His Spirit in this city and it would just overflow to other cities and we would see a true, genuine revival that God can only do and not the work of man trying to pump their own ministries and trying to promote their own ministries and trying to pressure people. Let's just do what God has called us to do. Let's study the Word. Let's pray. Let's depend upon Him. And let's be open to be used. And let's deal with sin. And if we do that, let me tell you, there's no limit what God can do. And when he does what he wants to do, nobody will get the glory except God himself. Now, I like that. 
That's the best part of it. So I pray that you open your heart to God. He cares very much for you. And he's not through with you. He just wants you to open your heart. Pastor Xavier Reese, drawing important simple truths for what it takes to be greatly used of God and how he uses us in doing his great work. Now today's message is simply titled, Men That God Uses, and is available as always on CD for just $4. And by the way, this will also include everything Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together as well. So once again, the title you want to ask for is, Men That God Uses, or simply mention today's date. And here's how you can reach us. Write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's important that you let us know the call letters of this station when you contact us. And then join us for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 